0: So like many of you, I presume, I grew up attending public school. Through the years in school, each morning began the same way, standing, putting my hand over my heart, turning towards a banner of stars and stripes, which I don't see anywhere in this room, um, (coughs) and saying these words, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It was so common, so presumed. By the time I think I was through elementary school, it was a pretty perfunctory exercise. I'm not sure I ever really had a moment of genuine patriotic feeling as we recited the daily ritual, right? But it was a routine part of my day nonetheless. My kids, on the other hand, go to school in Berkeley In 2019 and so none of them know the pledge (laughs) I asked my daughters this week if they had even any idea what it was and they all looked at me blankly they had never even heard of it Um, and that's for good reason it was in 1984 that the Berkeley School Board voted uh, to not require the pledge to be recited in Berkeley schools Okay. Some schools still at least teach it, I believe, in some way in Berkeley. I don't know. Maybe Pete if you know it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, perfunctory displays of patriotism, not exactly maybe what Berkeley is known for. And personally, I'm okay with this. The truth is I've never been one to feel particularly stirred by national rituals like the Pledge or the Anthem. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be if you are. Um, It's just, that's me. Maybe it's the fact I was born on the 3rd of July, which meant I spent the first several years of my life believing that the annual fireworks show we went to on my birthday in my hometown was actually to celebrate me, not the national holiday that was on the next day. Um, It's not that I'm not grateful to be a citizen of the United States. I definitely am. Being born in the time and place I was has afforded me a life of relative peace and prosperity, an opportunity to have a voice in my own government, an experience that I'm well aware of many humans throughout history haven't had, including many today. Every time I cast a vote, I do feel a stir of pride and gratitude for the capacity to do that. I take civic engagement seriously. I grew up in San Diego, which is a large military town. So respect for the troops and the flag they represent, that's like a cultural touchstone, for sure. I mean, both of my high school proms were actually at a military base. My father is a Vietnam veteran. So I've always had a deep respect and gratitude for those who've served our country with the goal of defending the peace and prosperity that I enjoy, even putting their lives on the line to do so. But as I've grown older from the days when I first learned the Pledge of Allegiance, and I've become aware of more of our nation's messy story, I've also become a bit more cynical about the assertions we make in our national hymns and pledges. Can we really celebrate liberty and justice for all in an era of mass incarceration? The pledge was written in 1892, 30 years before women had the right to vote. So were we as women included in the one indivisible nation? And why do we talk about being under God anyway? How is our faith or lack of faith in some deity connected to our understanding of what it means to be American? Well, as most of you know by now, we are well into our series that's been a defining conversation for our community. It has been in the past, and it is again, as we consider some of what I'm pitching are kind of the idols of our day, human constructs that allow us to elevate certain points of view over others, and in so doing, distort our understanding of reality, and certainly, I would say, of God. This series, again, is one we're revisiting, Some of the teachings I've been kind of reworking from preaching them before. We've talked about the idol behind patriarchy, androcentrism. We've talked about heteronormativity, whiteness, even the idol of evangelicalism. But today's teaching is a new one for us to consider together. And as we do it, we're connecting some of the questions I've been bringing up in my own musings about patriotism and wondering together, how are followers of Jesus supposed to think about our relationship to the state what is its connection to the life of faith particularly for us in the United States a nation that's often drawn on Judeo-Christian imagery in its civic life but has also codified some separation between church and state the question can feel murky so what do we know about how Jesus thought about our commitment to our country seems like a place to go Well, to answer that question, which we're going to do today, um, or at least we're going to try to get a sense of it, I got to be honest, this is a big topic, so I'm not going to be exhaustive, but to start to answer that question, of course it makes sense to look at the New Testament, what it tells us about the life of Jesus and his earliest followers, but it also makes sense to understand the context Jesus was coming into, because we got to remember, Jesus was Jewish. Came into a Jewish culture at a particular moment in history, and that culture had its own journey of how it had been navigating these questions around the intersection of faith and political governance. And the breadth of that journey is perhaps most easily illustrated by noting two significant moments in the journey. So I just want to take a moment, kind of as background to consider two particular eras in the life of Israel that I think are relevant for us as we consider the tradition that Jesus arose from and then will help better give us an understanding of what he had to say, okay? So this is where, if you are the type that likes to take notes or follow along on a page, I'm going to start getting into some fill-in-the-blanks. There's some orange handouts you can, uh, you can take up advantage of. And this is our first fill-in-the-blank. The first era to consider in Jesus' tradi- tradition I am calling the nation of Israel era. Okay, the nation of Israel era. After the Hebrew people were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they received the law from Moses. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. They finally, through conquest, they're given the promised land. And then once there, they establish a nation state. They establish Israel. They unify 12 different tribes into one country. That nation eventually becomes a monarchy with a king. The capital is Jerusalem. And in the holy city of Jerusalem, God invites people to build a temple, which is understood to be the dwelling of God on earth. Okay? So in Israel, the faith and the government are connected. Right? King David, with all his philandering faults, um, he comes to be known in this era as like the archetypal leader. Okay, anointed by God, God's anointed to lead the nation both as a governing king and as a worshiper of God, fulfilling both a political role and a priestly role, okay, in one person. Now remember, David comes to power as a military leader, he's the general of an army, but he also writes many of the Psalms, which were essentially that was like the worship book, the prayer book of the people of Israel, right? Here's just one of the Psalms that's said to be written by King David, and in it you can see a clear unity of understanding that Israel is under its God, who is God above all others, and that other nations will even see that and submit to Israel and Israel's God. David says, summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring your gifts Scatter the nations who delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. So we have this era in which the nation-state was understood to align with what it meant to be God's people, okay? Following God's moral laws and right worship of God were tied to political sovereignty as God's people reigned in their own promised land. Now, of course, some of the kings ended up being more righteous than others, but whether the king was honoring God and responding to the prophets and priests appropriately or not— People basically understood God's ultimately in charge of the well-being of this nation. And God is working through Israel's political systems to bring freedom and blessing to the people of Israel. Victory, even, over their enemies. Okay? So that's era one. But of course that era didn't last, right? Eventually, the people of God kept ignoring the cries of the prophets, weren't living into faithfulness to Yahweh. And with that era of falling away from this Yahweh-honoring worship also came a loss of political sovereignty. Foreign adversaries overtook all 12 tribes. The people were annihilated, assimilated, carried off, taken from the land to live in exile. And this is another significant example of how the people of God related to their political surroundings In the Hebrew Bible as foreigners in exile we can call this number two the exile era the exile era (coughs) compared to the mountaintop experience of David's day you can imagine the exile felt demoralizing dispiriting right the exiles hadn't only lost political power they'd been separated from the very land they called sacred and yet Through the prophet Jeremiah, God's people weren't simply abandoned to like nostalgically long for the good old days. They were given instruction on how to live faithfully to Yahweh in this new era, as if this too was part of God's plan for them. Jeremiah said this to the exiles, the Lord God of Israel who rules over all, says to all those he sent into exile to Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Allow your daughters to get married so they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number. Do not dwindle away. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it. For as it prospers, you will prosper. So this is something very different, right? Right? that God is asking the people of God to do in regards to how they relate to the world around them. Rather than possessing their own land, running their own country, defending their borders, fighting off enemies, they're invited to make a home in a place they don't hold the political power. They're invited to form alliances, even marriages in this land, presumably with people who don't share their heritage. They're encouraged to seek peace and prosperity, the Hebrew word shalom, for the city of Babylon, praying for it, understanding their fortunes are tied up with Babylon's. So that's era two. As we see in the Hebrew Bible, we have these two different visions of how the people of God are to live in relation to the political state, right? And then as the story unfolds further in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene. And this is for us where things get particularly interesting. Jesus comes into yet another political context. Jesus comes into an occupation. Okay, an occupation. The people of Israel have returned to their land now. They've rebuilt the ruins of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. They've restored worship there. But in the era of empires... They are no longer a sovereign nation. They're an occupied people. Roman soldiers patrol their sacred lands. Heavy taxes are extracted from their hard work and sent to a foreign Caesar. They long for a Messiah, an anointed one that was prophesied centuries ago to come and deliver them from this oppression. They dream of a challenger to Rome. A king that will rule again on David's throne so they may be restored to political sovereignty. But this doesn't seem to be the project Jesus is interested in. Right? Jesus, who does demonstrate genuine supernatural power, who seems to carry the mantle of God's presence in an unbelievable way, who preaches with authority, feeds the hungry, heals the sick, affirms his follower, Peter, when Peter declares, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, son of the living God. And Jesus says, Yeah. But this Jesus is up to a different kind of project. You could say he talks nonstop in a kind of political language. He keeps talking about a new kind of kingdom a kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. But this kingdom doesn't seem to be like the kingdoms the world has known before. Jesus offers 37 descriptions throughout the Gospels of this kingdom, but none of them sound like the kingdom his followers have ever seen or even imagined. It's a kingdom that starts like a tiny mustard seed and slowly grows to be a large tree or a bit of yeast that works through dough, transforming it as it does. It's a a hidden treasure found in a field. It's a pearl of great price, but it does not seem to be marked by might. Instead, it seems to be marked by expanding mercy and love. The tension between what Jesus' friends and followers seem to expect of him and what he's come to do only heightens in the last hours of his life. At his arrest, when the group of Jewish leaders arrive to take Jesus by force, his friend Peter pulls out a sword to defend him, slashing the ear off of one of the men who's detaining him, and rather than encouraging his followers to take up arms, Jesus rebukes Peter's violent outburst and he heals the man's ear. He allows himself to be taken and then to be sent as a political prisoner by the Jewish leaders to Pilate, the governor from Rome, the politician tasked with overseeing the Jewish people on behalf of their Roman occupiers. In this conversation with a man of worldly political power, here is where we see Jesus put on the spot to explain his own kind of power. Look at John 18. So Pilate went back into the governor's residence, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or have others told you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. So what have you done? Jesus replied, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus is aligning himself, not with an earthly political kingdom ruled by violence, but a different kind of kingdom, one, he says, that's not of this world. His is a kingdom that testifies to the truth that God is inviting all of God's creation into a transnational kind of familial community. Not one that's marked by the quest for political power and might, but one that's marked by inclusive community, freedom, connection, self-giving love. It's for this reason that Latino theologians like Adamaria Isasi diaz who we have a picture of, have coined a different term they prefer to use, and I'm going to be using, to describe what Jesus seems to be naming. The kingdom of God. Because this is not an oppressive concentration of power in the hands of a ruthless monarch. Jesus is inviting followers into a kind of kinship. As Diaz says, la familia del Dios. Right? A family of God. A kingdom. And Jesus makes clear he wants this kingdom to transcend national borders. Right? He tells his followers, make followers of all nations. Right? He doesn't say go build a nation. He doesn't invite his friends to kick out Rome and build a new state of Israel. Jesus' peers seem to want him to take them back to the nation of Israel era. Right? Make Israel great again is what they want. They think that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. But that's not Jesus' mission. That's not the part of the story Jesus is inviting his followers to live into. Rather, Jesus seems to understand himself and his followers as living in a different place in Israel's history. The era in which Jeremiah was prophesying. He's calling them to live and worship as those dwelling in exile. You with me? It's a call that wasn't lost on Jesus' closest followers. Peter went from being the guy who took up the sword to defend what he thought was Jesus' earthly kingdom to a core founder of this transnational community that Jesus left behind to carry on his work. Peter becomes this core founder of the community trying to live out Jesus' kingdom, kingdom values, the church. A community that wasn't to live as a governing party, but as a community in exile. Peter says it this way in his letter, First Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you might proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. So dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. And maintain good conduct among the non-Christians, so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, whether to a king as supreme or to governors as those he commissions to punish wrongdoers and praise those who do good. For God wants you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So live as free people. Not using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but as God's slaves or servants. Honor all people. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Peter, it seems, believes that to follow Jesus means to live with an identity that is informed first and foremost through commitment to this community that Jesus was here to reveal living as those who receive the mercy of the divine. He calls that community a holy nation, a chosen people. Paul said something similar when he told his listeners that they were first and foremost citizens of heaven, right? But as Peter demonstrates, to be a citizen of heaven, to be a part of the holy nation, doesn't necessarily mean like living in active rebellion with the state you find yourself in either. In the same way that Jeremiah seemed to coach his listeners to, like, be good neighbors, Peter seems to be coaching a similar kind of submission and participation to the earthly political context his listeners find themselves in. It's the participation of exiles. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, he says. By and large, he didn't want his followers to be perceived as these, like, political revolutionaries who were rebelliously seeking to overthrow the state. They were to work within whatever governing system they found themselves, but to remember that their fear, he says, honor the king, but fear God. And in this instance, fear really means worship, revere, be devoted to God alone, right? So what does all this have to do with us? Well, after the 2016 election, A lot of smart people have been running analysis on, like, what just happened here? How did we get here? What just went down? And three of the people asking that question were sociologists who did a really interesting study of the effect of what they call Christian nationalism on the 2016 election. And what they found was that even controlling for other factors that are certainly related but not exactly the same such as racism, sexism, economic uncertainty. One of the clearest indicators that someone was likely to vote for the current occupant of the White House was their investment in Christian nationalism. So what is that? Christian nationalism as these scholars defined it is the belief that America was founded as a specifically Christian nation and that a core part of its identity is to govern with Christian values. This um, shares some overlap, but is distinctly different from what's also known in sociology and politics as civil religion. The authors of the study kind of demonstrate this through this quote of, of the difference. Civil religion, on the one hand, often refers to America's covenantal relationship with a divine creator who promises blessing for the nation for fulfilling its responsibility to defend liberty and justice. While vaguely connected to Christianity, appeals to civil religion rarely refer to Jesus Christ or other explicitly Christian symbols. One nation under God. So a little bit more of civil religion demonstration. Christian nationalists take it a step further. The scholars say it this way. Christian nationalism, however, draws its roots from Old Testament parallels between America and Israel, who was commanded to maintain cultural and blood purity often through war, conquest, and separatism. These Christian nationalists see themselves as living in a new Israel. And the tradition has a history, a long one, often with language like the New Jerusalem, the New Zion being used. In 1630, preacher John Winthrop spoke to his community in the Massachusetts Bay Colony about establishing a city on a hill. A place where the God of Israel would be uniquely present in their midst as Yahweh had been in Jerusalem. The tradition that took root of seeing this American project that way lives on. And it still shapes how many American Christians understand their identity in this day. Whether they go to church a lot or not. Whatever, depend, the Christian nationalism overlaps with a number of different Christian traditions. It's really where you see yourself in the story. And for these folks, they're very encouraged to live into themselves and the American project as a nation of Israel era. Does that make sense? This is how all of that connects. Because that story is still with us. And if you believe you're living in that part of the story, then it shapes your expectations of how you relate to the world around you, doesn't it? Because during the nation of Israel era, as the authors of the study point out, at least part of the understanding of what it meant to be Israel was to pursue this religious cultural purity. Not to be persuaded by the gods or goddesses of surrounding cultures. But of course we're talking about folks who are reading this story divorced from the culture in which that story emerged divorced from a deep cultural understanding they don't even necessarily read the the words in Hebrew right so divorced from the language divorced from the culture divorced from an understanding of how that story emerged what it meant to the people it emerged among what it means to those people today and when you read the story that way as your story when you appropriate it that way it can lead to some scary things Living into that story has meant seizing lands inhabited by indigenous people because you believe God has given you a manifest destiny to take your own promised land. Living into that story has meant claiming a supposed God-given right to possess human beings. It has meant the rise of hymns like Onward, Christian Soldiers. It has meant in a world of growing globalism and multinationalism a rise of sentiment that doesn't espouse love of neighbor but instead proudly proclaims America first. Living into this story has meant resisting immigration, saying of those who are perceived to be other, particularly those who are not white, send them back. But as we've already shown, this was not the story Jesus wanted his followers to live into. This was not the story we were supposed to live into. This is not faithfulness to the divine. It is instead another form of idolatry. I believe it is the idol of nationalism. Now, I am not saying there is no value in having a national identity. Do not hear me say that. Political theorists, theorists will argue, and I think there's real truth to this, that a sense of patriotism, of value in the state, is really necessary for any welfare state to exist. It is needed for us to want to pay taxes and to do this with the assurance that our money is going to support people we will never meet. Right? You have to have a sense of shared identity in order for that kind of a system to even work. Perhaps this is what Peter was calling his listeners to when he encouraged them to be subject to their governing authorities. He understood that to build communities of peace and shalom, we need that cooperative spirit that a national identity can bring. The problem is when we begin to pit our community against another. When nationalism becomes another form of tribalism, when we bolster the rivalry by casting God as rooting for our team, against someone else's. So if the call is to live primarily as exiles rather than powerful nationalists, how are we supposed to do that? How do we live in this day and age as exiles instead of nationalists? I'm just going to end with a few ideas. First. I think we have to examine our allegiances. Examine our allegiances. Here's the truth. The project of building nations for thousands of years has often involved cultivating fondness for the state by employing some devotion to deity. Okay, religion and government mixing. That has long been a thing. Okay? In the ancient world, heads of state were often looked to as gods or close to them. The Roman Empire that Jesus found himself in basically deified their Caesars, okay? their rulers, which meant that even when Jesus' followers were choosing to respect the king, to pay taxes, to give to Caesars what is Caesar's in Jesus' words, they were still speaking out against pledging allegiance to Caesar the way the Romans wanted And this, they would not revere Caesar. I'll pay your taxes. I will live peacefully. I will follow the rules. But I am not going to pledge allegiance. I am not going to worship. And it's for that reason that ultimately many of Jesus' closest followers, including Peter himself, found themselves martyred. Because while they tried to live peacefully within the political empires they found themselves in, when push came to shove, they were not going to worship the emperor. Jesus is Lord was a political statement. It meant Caesar is not. And the refusal to bow down and worship Caesar cost many of them their lives. Now we live in a different context, thank goodness, right? Than those earliest followers of Jesus. In our democratic republic, which has since its founding named at least a value for separating church and state, we shouldn't be required to bow down and worship our heads of state. And yet, it can't be denied that in more subtle ways, we're being pressured to declare allegiance to something other than the divine on a regular basis. It can happen as we say the pledge or sing the national anthem. I am not saying, do not hear me saying as a Christian, you should never do that. But I do invite each of us to think about it, right? To be conscientious of what it means. Perhaps ask the Spirit, what it means for us to, exercise, to to participate in those exercises and how we're investing our hearts into something other than the divine as we participate in patriotic rituals. Now I'm not just talking though about like these traditional acts of patriotism. I'm not even talking about particular practices of any particular political party because candidates of all stripes, all political parties, activist movements, social organizations, all of them are calling on us in some way to become devoted to them, right? Now, I believe that part of living as exiles is participating in these organizations in real ways, bringing the salt and light of God's expanse of love into every context we find ourselves in. But as we do that, we have to be aware of how our hearts are becoming aligned with other agendas. We always need to maintain the freedom to critique and push back when our systems move counter to the way of the divine. In 1953, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon he called the false god of nationalism. And in it, he prophetically described the tension this way. One cannot worship this false god of nationalism and the god of Christianity at the same time. We must choose whom we will serve. Will we continue to serve the false God that places absolute national sovereignty first? Or will we serve the God in whom there is no East or West? Will we continue to serve the false God of imperialistic greed? Or will we serve the God who makes love the key which unlocks the door of peace and security? Will we continue to serve the false God of racial prejudice? Or will we serve the God who made of one blood all men to dwell upon the face of the earth? We have to examine our allegiances. I think that's step one. The second thing I would call us to do to live in exile, as exiles is to embody kingdom values. Embody kingdom values. Thankfully, Christian nationalism is not the only model for engaging as Jesus' followers in a representative democracy. There have also long been people of faith who have committed to using the tools available to them, including civil engagement, nonviolent resistance, even civil disobedience, when necessary, to further the values of God's kingdom. Abolitionists, suffragettes, civil rights leaders... Many of them, too, were people of Jesus-centered faith, not folks who believed that Jesus had ordained them to establish a new empire over and above any other, but folks who understood that their commitment to Jesus meant engaging with the state on behalf of the vulnerable, just as Jesus had done. This, this is our call to care for the poor who Jesus called blessed, to tear down the social barriers of exclusion as Jesus did in his day, to protect the immigrants, recognizing them that all in the human family are our neighbors, and so all are our concern. Amen? And we do so, as we do so, we need to be careful not just about what we stand up for, but how we do it. We must remember we are following a nonviolent leader who did not raise the sword when attacked. We follow one like Peter who coached his followers to live above reproach, modeling the loving way of the divine in their engagement. So may the way we speak, the way we act, the way we resist, be a living testimony to the one we call king. Finally, I believe we're called to work for the shalom of our earthly homes. To work for the shalom of our earthly homes. Homes. Remember Jeremiah's invitation to the exiles in Babylon. Not only should they joyfully engage with the world around them, taking wives, building homes, but they should work for the shalom of their communities. Now, shalom is often translated peace, and it is that, but it is more than just a lack of conflict. Shalom is total well-being, holistic wellness, prosperity, flourishing of life. That is what we're called to work towards as foreigners and exiles. That means not only actively pursuing initiatives to restore peace, prosperity, and well-being in all our communities. It means caring for the health of the land itself that we find ourselves on. It means building initiatives that cultivate peace across national borders, rather than putting our own nation's interest above others. And it means as people of faith, actively praying for the well-being of our city, our nation, our world, just as Jeremiah encouraged his exiles to pray. In recent months, shout out to you, Connie, our own Connie Barker and Sylvia Williams have been praying every morning at 6.30 for at least an hour, Monday through Friday, online together, interceding for our Haven community, interceding for one another, and interceding for issues in the world, politically and otherwise, right? It's amazing. They're praying regularly for the shalom of the earth, the shalom of our country, the shalom of the world. They would love to have you join them. If any of you would like to talk online. Uh-huh. The environment and the biosphere. Yes, the health of all of it. Okay, so you're always, if, you, if 6.30 a.m. is a good time for you, I'm sure they would love to have you join them online. They're also going to be organizing, I think, some future gatherings in the evenings, maybe once or twice a month for those for whom that time is a a bit hard. I've joined them a few times, and it's been so powerful. This is something I think all of us are encouraged to find a way to participate in, right? Whatever way, however that looks for you, all of us are invited to find our own way of participating in the sacred work of seeking the shalom of our homes, The good news is, in all of this, as we end, I'm just going to say it this way. Jesus is not our national mascot. Amen? Jesus is not our national mascot. Jesus is not anyone's national mascot. No. Jesus is the clearest revelation of the divine heart at the center of the universe that is inviting all of us home into the transnational family of God. He is the one who is called the Prince of Peace, the one who causes the lion to lie down with the lamb and the swords to be traded for plowshares, and he is inviting us every day to live into this kingdom he came to initiate, where family members from every tongue and tribe and nation will live in complete shalom with one another, and celebration of the heart that loves us all. May we turn away from nationalistic idolatry. And may we all join him and the spirit he fills us with in that work. Amen.